Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Mmm, so good. Well, my name is Carl. I'm one of the uh, ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. Glad you guys are here with us, eager to get into this and look at this text together. But as usual, before I start, I'm going to share a little something. I want you to imagine it's 1985. I'm 12 years old. I'm in seventh grade. If you wanted to find me, the best place to look would be in my parents' driveway. Likely shooting basket, basketball with friends, maybe laying out a cardboard box, do a little break dancing. <laughs> I used to break dance, what's up? <laughs> right, when I first told the other guys on staff about this, Tim Hollis, our worship minister, went straight to his computer and started monkeying around on Photoshop and came up with this. That is my face, that is not my body. Let's take that down, it's terrible. You laughed a little too hard at that. But yeah, I really was a break dancer. I'm seriously, I'll prove it. I'm just kidding, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that. So you can find me in my parents' driveway, hanging out with my friends, or if it's a Friday or Saturday, you might find me down at the mall, wandering the halls, wearing my best 80s gear, right? Hobie Cat t-shirt, members only jacket. Got the jeans tight rolled up over my high tops. Got my swatch watch on. Hanging out, having a good time. Got a messy kind of haircut like Kevin Bacon from Footloose. Yeah, I used to have hair. That's true too. Stop making fun of me. So life for that 12 year old, pretty good. Living the 80s life, it was really awesome. Had the chrome mongoose BMX bike. Had the big Sanyo boombox that took like 723 D-cell batteries and would run for like four minutes before he had to change them out. Life was as it should be. Everything was normal, nothing unusual, nothing weird, just loving it. Until this one day I came home from school and I walked into the garage. In our garage we had an extra refrigerator where mom would keep like drinks and stuff. So I go to the fridge, I open the door, hoping to see like Sunny D, maybe a glass of milk or something. What I see instead, floor to ceiling, wall to wall, front to back, Coca-Cola, cans of Coke, completely full. I thought, that's weird. I mean, I don't dislike Coke. That's a lot of Coke. And I closed the thing, trying to figure out what's going on. And as I'm closing the door, I realize next to the refrigerator, on the ground, stacked up nearly to the ceiling, is case after case after case after case after case of more Coke. And I thought, Something's wrong with mom. I should go check on mom. Something's clearly bad. She's having a nervous breakdown. I go inside, say, hey mom, hey, you wanna, you wanna tell me about the, the Coke? What's going on out there? So we have a conversation. It turns out Coca-Cola had come out with a new product called New Coke. Mm, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you feel it, you feel the pain. New Coke was basically Coke that tastes like Pepsi. What was that about? Nobody knows. My mom was like, oh, New Coke, cool. Let's see what's that about. She gets one, hate it, and she gets in her car and does what any sane person would do, and she went to every grocery store in town and spent what I could only think is my parents' life savings on all the Coke she could find that was already on the shelves that was the old formula. Because not only were they introducing New Coke, they were discontinuing the old Coke, the Coke that had been around since 1886. They were like, nah, we're gonna make our stuff like Pepsi. And my mom was like, nope. And she bought all the Coke in town. <laughs> so the good news is just a, a few months later, after literally tens of thousands of complaints, the Coca-Cola Corporation was like, okay, you guys, we get it. We're real, real sorry. We're bringing it back. We're gonna call it Coca-Cola Classic. Right? They brought the old formula back, and the 1985 Coca-Cola crisis in the Brower household was averted. Now, plot twist. The story is not about me. It's not about my mom. It's about Coca-Cola. They learned something through that ordeal. They learned something. They learned, and what they needed to have done was stick to the original formula. Stick to what had been written down. Stick to what had been given to them, handed down from the guys in the 1880s, and just stick with it. It was, it was working. Why are you changing it? Why are you trying to add to it? They thought they would get more market share. They thought they would be more popular if they did this. Nope. 
It was the exact opposite. And similarly, in our passage this morning, Paul is going to address this kind of idea with the Corinthians. He's going to try to convince them that they shouldn't be adding to or going beyond what's been written, what's been handed down to them, trying to exalt themselves over one another, but to stick to the gospel as it has been faithfully handed down to them. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us. We pray you'll be near to us as we study your word together. Pray that you will strengthen our hearts, that by your spirit we'll be encouraged, reminded that you're good, that you do good, that you give good gifts to your children, that you can be trusted. And so as we bring our difficulties and and frustrations and anxieties into this room with us, like we do everywhere we go, we pray that your spirit will strengthen our hearts and help us to be tethered to your word this morning, that we might remember that we have a good God and that we might learn more of you this morning so that we might know you better, so that we might love you more, so that we might then worship you more rightly. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So in the first few chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, which is where we've been, we've been for the last several months, we, we've, looking, we've been looking at Paul. He's been addressing the church in Corinth and dealing with a particular issue, which is division in the church, right? Particularly in regard to how they're dividing over which teacher they like better, right? Some are saying, well, I follow Paul. And some are saying, I follow Apollos. And some are saying, I follow Cephas. And Paul is trying to address this issue that it shouldn't be this way. And so he's continuing to address that very issue in our passage this morning, starting in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So what does this verse mean? Paul is saying, I'm going to make myself and Apollos the example here, guys, in order to show you guys what it's supposed to look like so that you'll learn to stay within the bounds of Scripture. That's what he's telling them. So he says, I've applied all these things. What is he saying? What are these things? It's everything he's been saying up until this point. Everything he said in the previous chapters, he's been calling for them to put aside their division, to embrace unity, right? His appeal to them to kind of renounce worldly wisdom and how that's different than the way God sees wisdom. And what does it mean that he's applied these things to himself in Apollos? Well, the reality is it's very likely there are more factions within the church than just Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. There were likely other good teachers that they were dividing over and aligning themselves with. And Paul's saying, I'm not going to call anybody out by name. I'm not going to make a big stink about who's doing what. I'm going to use ourselves as the example so that this admonition I have for you, so this rebuke that is coming that I have for you will be a slightly easier pill to swallow. And he says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. What is written? What does that mean? He's talking about the scriptures. He's talking about the word of God. And remember, at this time, it's just the Old Testament. The Old Testament for them is the scriptures. The New Testament hasn't been canonized. In fact, Paul is literally in the middle of writing some of the New Testament as we read it. But what does it mean to go beyond what is written? First, I want us to cover what it does not mean. Paul does not mean that we now dismiss anything that's not the Bible. We don't throw out creeds, we don't throw out confessions, we don't get rid of the statement of faith here at Parkway. Paul's not saying something like, no creed but the Bible, which in and of itself is a creed, by the way. He's not making this general statement that you shouldn't read anything but the Bible. He's making a specific charge against the behavior of the Corinthians. And so he's appealing to the text, the Word of God, the Old Testament, and he's saying and has quoted from the Old Testament several times already in the previous chapters. He's quoted Isaiah, talking about God destroying the wisdom of the wise. He's quoted from Jeremiah, trying to help them remember that that God says boasting should only be in the Lord. He's quoted from Job and from Psalms, trying to remind them of this idea that the wisdom of the world is folly to God. And so when he says, don't go beyond what's written, He's saying, don't do that so that you might not become puffed up in favor of one against another. He's saying that is what it means to go beyond what's written. He says, you getting prideful and puffed up about the teacher that you like best, that is you going beyond what's written. And what what is it that's causing them to be puffed up? What is it that's causing this division? This idea that they're striving for value and notoriety based on someone's ability to be a good public speaker. The guy who speaks the most eloquently, the guy that seems to be the most learned, the guy who's got the cleverest speech, that's my guy. And that's how they value 
people in this culture at this time. Instead, they should be, and this is Paul's point, resting upon the foundation of what those good teachers are teaching, Christ. You should be exalting and getting excited about what you're being taught, which is Jesus, but instead, you're getting excited about and exalting who's teaching it. And that's the issue that Paul has with them. That's what he's addressing. That's what he's rebuking. So he moves from this idea of attacking this unbiblical position of this kind of prideful heart, and he moves into addressing the behavior that that prideful heart exhibits, which is boasting. Verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So what does this verse mean? Paul wants the Corinthians to remember that everything good that they have, anything good, the possessions they have, the spiritual gifts they have, even those good teachers that they're dividing over, those things all come from God. And because they are gifts from God, you've got nothing to brag about, bro. You've got nothing to boast in. So this opening question, for who sees anything different in you? This question could be seen as a negative question, like, hey, who do you think you are? It could be that. It's more likely it's a positive kind of question. Who sees anything different in you, right? Meaning, who made you what you are? Who makes you different from other people? And the answer, of course, is God. But the Corinthians wouldn't answer that question that way. The Corinthians would answer that question, we do. We make ourselves awesome. I follow this awesome guy. He's an awesome speaker, right? We're smart, we're wise, we're following the right guys. We make ourselves what we are. And if we're honest, we might answer that question that way sometimes as well. But the answer, of course, is God. God makes us different. And the two questions that come follow from it. Well, what do you have then that you didn't receive? Well, God gave you everything good that you have. Your status should be all of Christ. Your eloquent speech, your flowing rhetoric, your charismatic leadership, or the leadership capabilities of the guys you're following, all this worldly wisdom that you're chasing after, all that was given to you by God. So how do you boast in it? And what are we, how would we do this today? Well, we might think we're really good at being a parent. We might think we're really good at our job. We might think we've got a good sense of humor. We might think that we're a good public speaker. Right? You might think that you're the best French horn player on staff. <laughs> like This would be like Usain Bolt boasting and being the fastest man on the planet, which he is. He runs the 100-meter dash faster than anybody. But why? Well, a lot of reasons. One of them, his legs are physically longer than the average sprinter. It takes him fewer steps to get 100 meters. When he gets to the finish line, the guy who's taking the exact same amount of steps as him is further behind. It's just a function of his physicality. Now, has he practiced and has he worked out and has he done? Sure. But at the end of the day, those things have been given to him by God. What do you got to boast in, Usain? When you get across the finish line and you beat your chest and you wave your flag, God gave you those things, right? Did you work hard? You betcha. But who gave that to you? Who even gave you that work ethic? God did. So, the scriptures speak clearly about this boasting issue. We see it in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Or Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then what we heard just two weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23. Let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So we should not be boasting in anything that's been given to us, possessions, gifts, even those good teachers. We don't even get to boast in our good work ethic, right? It's not okay for us to say, yeah, yeah, yeah God, God gave me this gift, but I had to get up early in the morning and work on it and use that gift and really crank it out and really make that gift something special. Well, who gave you the ability and the work ethic to get up in the morning and to work hard? God did, right? You literally have nothing you can boast in, and that is the point that Paul's making. That's what he keeps beating this drum again and again and again. And that's why the scriptures point us so often to boasting only in Christ. So Paul is telling the people of the Corinthian church, God's given you these good teachers, 
And then you take the praise and honor and glory and worship and exaltation and loyalty that you are meant to give to Christ, and you give it to these teachers rather than the source of what they teach. It's like if you were a musical artist and you recorded this video and you got nominated for best video and then you won and then you went up on stage and you started thanking the producers and the directors and you just forget to thank the one who gave you all the gifts to make it with. Even after Kanye jumps up on the stage and grabs the mic at your hand and goes, this person's better than you. Like even then you forget to thank the Lord. So at Parkway, this is like us listening to a sermon on any given weekend here. And then we go and we talk to our friends and our family about it. But all we tell them about is how quick-witted and sharp, sharp, what a sharp mind Zach has, or how eloquent Jeff's phrasing is, or how impressive it is that Tim can be so musically gifted and also so able to preach so clearly, or how Carl is just so bald. <laughs> and I told you guys, quit making fun of me. Are those things true? Of course they are. But the emphasis and the allegiance that we create in our hearts in that moment is wrong. We failed to assimilate the message of what those good teachers are teaching. The gifts of each of those men has been given as a blessing to the church, but only in as much as they point us to the truth of God's word. Because it's there that we should place our focus. It is there that our allegiance and our loyalties should reside. Not in these men, Right? When you visit with any of our elders, when you talk with Wade Catlin or you sit down with Mike Boss or you have lunch with Dave Young and you're helped and you're encouraged by their wisdom and their love for you and for the scriptures, do those things make you want to praise the Lord or do they make you want to praise the man? Well, the good news for us is that these men aren't puffed up by your accolades and your praise. They've not strayed from the truth and made their gifts the focus, but this text is a warning to them and to us, church, we should not go beyond what is written. We must not contribute to the exaltation of men. The good news is that we can trust the Lord. But does that mean that we should not encourage these men? Well, of course not. We should encourage them. First Timothy says the elders are worthy of double honor, especially those who teach and preach. But if you stop those men in the hall, if you text them, if you email them, what do you say? Are your praises and your encouragements about the man and his gifts or about what those gifts have cultivated in you? Do you want to praise the Lord or do you want to praise the man? So Paul's addressed their pride. He's addressed their boasting. And now it's time for him to get a little bit spicy. Okay? Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now verse 8. Paul is getting really sarcastic. All these exclamations in verse 8 are meant sarcastically. And you might say, what? Sarcasm in the Bible? Surely not. Isn't that wrong? Isn't that mean? Isn't that sinful? No, it's not. There certainly can be times, right, where we would use sarcasm with one another in a way that is sinful, but that doesn't mean sin, it is sinful in and of itself, right? We find sarcasm in the Bible a fair amount. A couple of quick examples. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I'm sure you've heard this before, right? Baal is trying to demonstrate there is one true God, the God of Israel, and he says to the prophets of Baal, hey, how about a little, you know, little contest? You'll build an altar. I'll build an altar. We'll pray to our God. We'll see who sends down fire. Why don't you go first? And the prophets are like, and they're praying, and they're cutting themselves. <laughs> right? And the scriptures say in 1 Kings 18, verse 27, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself. Maybe he's going potty. <laughs> or he's on a journey. Or maybe he's asleep and he needs to be wakened. Right, does Elijah think those things are true? No, he's being sarcastic. Right? He's mocking them because their position is wrong. Jesus himself uses sarcasm. You remember the story of Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain fields? The disciples get hungry. They start picking the grain, right? And then the Pharisees jump out from behind the bushes. Aha, I got you. Eating on the Sabbath. <laughs> What's up now, Jesus? And Jesus says, have you not read 
And he tells them the story of David eating the bread of the presence, right? Does he really think that the Pharisees haven't read? Well, of course, they're Pharisees. They literally have it memorized. He knows they've read it. He's being sarcastic. Have <laughs> you not read? You clearly don't understand what the Word of God teaches, and then he explains it to them. Now, am I saying that sarcasm is always good? No, of course not. But neither is it always bad. As Christians, we tend to go further than the Scriptures go. Like the Pharisees, we tend to build extra fences around things, right? We do this with alcohol, right? We read that the Scriptures say drunkenness is sinful, so how do we stay away from drunkenness? We make a bigger fence. We just, alcohol's bad. But the Scripture says that the wine's been given to make men's hearts glad. So it's not the wine or the alcohol that's sinful, it's the drunkenness. We do this with sex. Sex is a good gift from God in the context of the covenant of marriage. Outside of that context, it is fornication and it is sinful and wrong. And so do we teach our kids, sex is bad. But it isn't. It's good when God says it's good. And so we don't go beyond and add to what the scriptures say, and we tend to do the same thing with sarcasm. Should we watch our tongue? Should we be cautious about how we speak? Absolutely. The Bible has much to say about the power of your tongue and your, and your speech. But sarcasm in and of itself is not sinful. So how is Paul using it? How is Paul using sarcasm here? He's mocking the, the Corinthians because they think they've made it. They think they've arrived, right? But in what way does Paul mean? It could mean that Paul is saying, you guys think that the kingdom's already here. You think you're already reigning with Christ. You think the end has come and we've all made it. Or Paul could be saying, you guys think you're more mature than you really are. You think you're further down the sanctification trail than you really are. You have this overblown sense of maturity. But in either case, the point of the verse remains the same. He's saying, Corinthians, you guys think that you've made it, but you have not. And so when he says, already you have all you want, what he's saying is we should get the image of like an overfed animal, an animal that's eaten and eaten and gorged itself on food. So it's satiated, it's bloated, it literally can't eat another bite. And that's what he's saying about them and their wisdom. You guys are so smart. You're so wise. You're just full. You've got all you could possibly want. You guys are the smartest. You couldn't possibly know anything else. That's what he's saying, right? Think of like how you feel on Thanksgiving when you sneak off to your closet to get your stretchy pants. That's the idea, okay? Already you have become rich, you have become kings, he says. In this Greek kind of stoic belief system that the Corinthians live in at the time, this idea of worldly wisdom, this, this eloquent speech being a good rhetorician is indeed to be wise, to be rich, to be like a king among men. There's a, an ancient Greek philosopher named Plutarch who said something that specifically references what Paul's talking about here. He says, but some think that the Stoics are jesting when they hear that in their sect, a wise man is termed not only prudent and just and brave, but also an orator, a poet, a general, a rich man, and a king. And it's this kind of thinking, this idea that if you're smart, if you can show you're smart, if you're a good speaker, if you seem real learned, man, then you're a king among us. That is what his sarcasm is aimed at. He's saying this thinking is false. You thinking that that's where value is found is false. In fact, the opposite is actually true. Then he says, without us, you have become kings. What he's basically saying is, hey, hey, who, who was it that taught you guys the gospel? All oh, right, that was us. Who was it that discipled you and, and taught you all the things you know? All oh, right, that was us. And yet somehow you've made it. Somehow you have arrived. You've gone on ahead of us. How is that possible, I wonder? Perhaps it's not true. Wouldn't it be great if it were true, right? When he says, wouldn't it be good if you did reign, that we might reign with you? He's saying, wouldn't it be awesome if what you think is true, that the kingdom had indeed come, that we, are, we were all fully sanctified? That would be great because we would be there with you and it would be awesome. Except it's not true. You're wrong. You're thinking about this incorrectly. Paul wants them to see that this life they're living is contrary to what is good, but they don't see it because they've always done it this way. They don't know any different. That's how they think. That's how this culture they're living in works. And Paul's trying to disassemble that for them. It reminds me of this guy 
that I waited on a long time ago. I used to be a waiter at a Mexican food place. It's where I met my wife, so I have very fond memories of this restaurant. And it was a lunch shift, and it was real slow, and this guy comes in by himself, and he sits down, and I'm his waiter. He's literally my only table at the time. I'm like, hey man, what can I get for you? He's like, uh, tea, and let me get this thing. And it was literally the biggest platter we have. It's like four enchiladas, a chili relleno, a taco, a guacamole salad, rice, beans, a tamale. Like, it was a mountain of food. And he's like, let me get that. I'm like, you got it, bro. And I go and I ring it up, and I bring it out, I set it down. And he, I said, anything else I can get for you? And he goes, man, you know what would be great? Do you guys have any honey? I was like, we do. For sopapillas, like, why do you want that? But I didn't say that. I was like, you bet, man, we got that. He said, yeah, will you bring that to me? I was like, sure. So I go in the back. I bring out a thing of honey. It's like one of those little thumb things that you like at IHOP where you pour out. It's like 10 ounces of honey. I set it on the table and I walk away and like stand around the corner. I'm like, what's he going to do? <laughs> and I get distracted by somebody and I talk to him. And when I turn back, the honey thing is empty and his plate is shining. And I thought, and he took his knife and his fork and he cut it. And then he cut it this way. And he took his fork and he stirred it. And he ate every bite of that thing. The only thing left was a weird little stem on the chilorino. And I'm thinking, oh man, what is going on? And I refilled his tea a couple times. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to get my tip, you know. And I'm about to take his plate and he goes, so? You going to ask? I was like... Nope, I was not. But since you brought it up, what is that about? And he's told me the story about how his family used to go to this Mexican food place every Sunday after church, and he was little, and he did like Mexican food. And so his mom, got to get him to eat, would take a forkful, put a little honey on it. Here you go, baby. And he learned to like Mexican food as long as it had honey. So that's all he knew. That's all he knew how to do. That's just what he, the way he lived. There is a better way to eat Mexican food. But he didn't know, and I wasn't going to teach him. But that's the idea. That's what's happening. And Paul wants them to see this life you're living isn't the way it's supposed to be. It feels right to you, but it's wrong. Right? So Paul's telling him it's different than this. What you're doing, how you're living, is literally in opposition to the way a believer in Christ is required to live. And he begins to explain and demonstrate what that is to them, starting in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. So he begins by saying, I think God has exhibited us. God is putting us on display to the whole world. Not the whole world, the whole universe. The world, men, angels, the life that we apostles are living, are being put as a display to the universe to show what it's supposed to look like to follow Christ. That is ultimately what he's trying to get them to see. This idea of we are being put on exhibit. And so the reason he's setting this up in the beginning is because he wants to be clear. Everything I'm about to tell you isn't going to sound good. But it is good because it was ordained by God, and it's how he has int intended our lives to be. In fact, the sufferings that Paul's going to describe are spoken about before he even gets to this point in his ministry. Way back in the book of Acts, God speaks specifically about Paul's suffering. So you remember the story, right? Saul, who becomes Paul, is on the road to Damascus. Jesus shows up, blinds him, says, hey man, you're going to follow me. And he's like, I guess I'm going to follow you. And then he goes, and Jesus goes to this guy, Ananias, and says, Ananias, you're going to go to Paul, you're going to give him a sight back, and you're going to take care of him. And Ananias is like, I don't know about that. This guy's awful. Hasn't he been like killing your people and stuff? And Jesus says, in Acts 9, verses 15 and 16, he says to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so this idea of suffering that Paul's going to be describing is not a bunch of things for him to lament or these calamities to be avoided or to be uh, anxious about, but this is indeed what God has intended for the apostles. So when he says exhibited us as apostles as last of all, he means like least of these. And then when he says like men sentenced to death, that whole phrase, men sentenced to death, is translated from one Greek word, and it's supposed to give you this image of like 
captured soldiers who are being marched to their executions, or like criminals who've been convicted and are now going to be thrown to the lions for their punishment as an entertainment for the masses kind of thing. It's meant to conjure up this lowest of the low, worst of the worst kind of idea. That's what's being put on display. And so starting here in verse 9 and throughout the rest of our passage, Paul's going to be making clear what kind of life the apostles have been living and how it compares with the life of the Corinthians. And at the same time, while he's making that comparison, he's going to be drawing connections between the lives of the apostles and the life of Christ. And that's part of his point. He's saying the life of a believer is meant to look like Christ. It's meant to be cross-shaped. Cruciform is the word we would use. It's meant to look like Christ. And that's what's missing from your life, Corinthians. That's what Paul wants for them to see. And so those connections between the apostles' lives and the cross begin right here in verse 9. Because who else was sentenced to death? Jesus. Who else was put on display before the world? Jesus. Christ was lifted up on a cross for all to see. And so Paul continues on by showing the contrast between the lives of the apostles and the lives of the Corinthians in verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And so again, Paul is showing this extreme contrast between the apostles and the Corinthians. He's demonstrating, helping them, wanting them to see this upside down kind of world that the kingdom is. The kingdom of God is different than the world thinks it is. And he's kind of calling back these themes that he's already set up earlier in the letter. He's talked about the differences between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world and how things are with God are upside down from the way they are with the world. So when he says we are fools, he's saying not that we're actually fools, but in the eyes of the world we're fools. In your eyes, you see us as foolish. And then he clarifies that by saying for Christ's sake. He's saying for the sake of the name of Christ, we look foolish to you but you are wise. This idea of wisdom and foolishness is well established. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 20, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 1 Corinthians 1, 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And that brings us to the next thing he says. We are weak, but you are strong. Again, in the eyes of the world, in your eyes, Corinthians, you see yourselves as strong and you see us as weak. It's actually the opposite of that. God doesn't choose the strong. God chooses the weak, right? Which one of Jesse's sons did God choose to be king? The oldest? tallest, strongest? Nope. He chose the kid that wasn't even there, right? When Jesse was told, hey, gather your sons because God's about to anoint a new king. It's going to be awesome. He's like, all right, boys, everybody get in the line. He didn't even bother to get David. He's too little. He's too weak. He's out in the field taking care, of the, taking care of the animals. But that's who God wants. That's who God chooses, this weak man who grows up to continue to be a weak man. He becomes a murderer and an adulterer, and yet God uses him to further his kingdom, to make much of his own name. Who does God choose to lead his people out of Egypt, right? A murderer fugitive on the run from the authorities with a speech impediment. Moses, go in there and get my people, right? Who does Jesus choose to be his disciples? These men that would be closest to him. Smart, well-trained men? Nope. Laborers, fishermen, tax collectors, poorly educated men, men who are looked down upon in society. Who did Jeff Ashley choose to run the, the, the group's ministry here at the... Zach Lee, so the idea is that God, for God, this worldly weakness is actually good because it displays God's power and his glory more brightly and more perfectly. When Paul's given a thorn in the flesh that we read about in 2 Corinthians, he asks God to remove it. And God replies in 2 Corinthians verse 9 of chapter 12. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Okay, so getting back to verse 10, he says, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Again, he's saying, it's backwards. It's not how it really is. Based on your standards, through your eyes, you see yourselves as honorable. You see us as disreputable. And again, all of these things parallel the teachings of Christ. 
Matthew 5, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next verse, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Matthew 5, 43 through 49, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And Luke 6, 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, that your reward will be great. These things are upside down from the way we think things ought to be. So then Paul moves from this comparison between the apostles' lives and the Corinthians' lives into more specific descriptions about this kind of cruciform life that the apostles are living. Verse 11, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. This idea of hunger and thirst, it's not unique to the apostles. Everybody gets hungry and thirsty, right? The idea is more connected to what happens in the rest of the verse, which is this idea of being poorly dressed, homeless, right? Don't have any clothes to wear, don't have any place to live, not sure when my next meal is going to come from. This word buffeted literally means to be mistreated, slapped around, right? Think of a homeless guy who's hungry and is being really mistreated by all the passersby because they see him as a man of such lowly status. But who else gets slapped around? Jesus. He is beaten and mocked before he's crucified. Who else was homeless? Jesus. Matthew 8, 19 and 20. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so this idea continues into verse 12 and then to 13. And we labor working with our own hands. Right? This is a continuation of that previous thought, this idea of a man being of a lowly station. Somebody who works with their own hands is a lowly man. Right? The rich man the well-esteemed men, the kings, the rich guys, they have people waiting on them hand and foot. They're not going to get their hands dirty. Paul was a tent maker by trade. He was not lifted up and exalted. That's the point he's making. And the second half of verse 12 and into verse 13, Paul moves into how the apostles respond to the hardships of life because those things are different as well, right? They are other markers of this cruciform life while also being these parallels to the life of Christ. He says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. He's saying, not only do we not live like the world, we don't respond like the world to difficulty. And there's plenty of scriptural support for that idea as well. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells us to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. Then he tells us that we're blessed when we're reviled and persecuted for the sake of his name. And then in the book of Acts, you see the apostles getting arrested and then beaten. And then when they're let go, they're celebrating and rejoicing because they were counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. And so Paul then says in verse 13, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The scum of the world. This is literally the, the gross bits that are left when you clean something. You're scraping off your work boots, sweeping a floor, scraping the yucky bits out of a frying pan. All that little stuff, that's the scum. That's what he's talking about. We're the worst. You don't even think about things like us. We're just to be thrown away. We're just trash. So the apostles' lives are looking like Jesus because they're homeless, they're mistreated, they're suffering, they're persecuted, they're being treated like garbage. And they're saying that is what it looks like to follow Christ. Not what you're doing, living this lavish life, arguing about who's the best teacher. So we might say to ourselves, how do, I, how do I do those things? I'm not reviled, I'm not persecuted, I'm not slandered, I'm not homeless. Should I be? Well, a couple things to say. First, you may not currently be persecuted. But here's the truth. It's very likely coming. Christians are being violently persecuted all over the world. There's kidnappings, bombings, mass murders, imprisonments all over the place. Syria, Myanmar, China, Nigeria, everywhere. I could go on and on. But that seems far away. What's closer? What about the LGBTQ plus, 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 plus movement? Right? That ideology has moved from, I'm a man and I feel like a woman and you need to be okay with it. It's moved from that into, I'm a man and I feel like a woman and you need to agree that I am. Not only that, you need to affirm who I am by using particular words to affirm what I believe about myself, to prove your loyalty to what I believe. 
And there's a large swath of our culture that agrees with those demands, has given in to those things. There's churches that have capitulated to those demands. But what's going to happen if the expectation for the entirety of our culture is capitulate, give in, use the right words, or you're going to face arrest, persecution, prosecution, imprisonment? Well, we don't have to wonder. It's already happening. There's a man in Canada who's got a 12-year-old daughter who thinks she's a boy. And she and her mom want to get her a sex change. And the courts are preventing dad from having anything to do with it. He cannot stop it. He's been told not to even talk about it. He was arrested a couple weeks ago. Why? Because he spoke publicly about his daughter using the words she and her. And so he was arrested. The reality, church, is it's coming. We don't know how. We don't know when. But we do know that it should not surprise us when it comes. Jesus makes clear that enduring persecution is a part of following him. So we should earnestly pray that when it does, that we will be ready. That the Spirit will grant us the strength to be steadfast in our convictions, that we will not renounce the name of Christ. Now that does not mean we seek out persecution. Right? Jesus says, blessed are you if you're persecuted for my name. But he does not say, now get out there and get persecuted. We're not supposed to seek it out. But we should know that it's coming. That it is a part of this life. If for some reason in the United States and Texas, if it becomes illegal to worship Jesus, then the church should be as shrewd as serpents, as innocent as doves. We're not just going to show up in the building and be like, we're doing what we want. Arrest us if you must. No, we're going to take the church underground. We're going to be faithful together while also protecting our livelihoods, protecting our families, protecting our lives. So I said a lot of stuff. Let me reiterate what that first point is. Persecution is a part of the Christian life and it's likely coming even for those of us in the comfortable United States of America, in the good old state, glorious state, best state, Texas, America. Second point. We should not look at this description of the apostles' lives and think that it's somehow a prescription for how all Christians are supposed to live. Paul's comparing the lives of the apostles to the lives of the Corinthians in order to help them see, hey, something is off with you, right? He's trying to help them see the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. The reality is that their lives should look different than the world, and their lives should look similar to other Christians, But what's actually happening is their lives look like the world, and they look different from other Christians. And that is Paul's point. He wants them to see something's off. In a similar way, we should look at Paul's description to see if there's something off with our lives. So we shouldn't read this passage and think, well, I'm supposed to be homeless. I'm supposed to be destitute. I'm supposed to be on the brink of starvation, or else I'm not being faithful. But we should be intentionally living beneath our means, sacrificing comforts, sacrificing preferences for the sake of being able to serve others and to give generously, right? If the Lord has blessed you and you're making a million dollars a year, are you rejecting the millionaire lifestyle that the world says you should have in order to embrace what it looks like to be a servant of the king? Or are you living that lifestyle? Do you look the way a millionaire should look to the world? Also, if you're a millionaire, we're looking to do a little renovation, get some more seats in here, Come see me after service. (laughs) So the question is not, am I living destitute and homeless like the apostles? The question is, am I getting rid of things that hinder my love for God? So when Jesus is talking to that rich young ruler who comes and says, tell me what I need to do. And Jesus says, tell you what you need to do. Sell all you have and follow me. He's asking him, are you willing to give up what you love more than me? Are you willing to make me the utmost of your affections? Are you willing to sacrifice all that you think is good for what is actually good? And for him, the answer is no, and he walks away. Well, what's that, what's the, what's that like for us? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Here in McKinney, we're pretty suburban, and we have to be honest, we're pretty wealthy. And there might be indeed be some of us who are like that rich young ruler, who what's needed is genuinely selling everything we have. There might be some of us that are in that place. In order to make Christ the utmost of our affections, we might need to do that. So the question is, who do you love most? What do you love most? 
Is it genuinely Jesus? Or do you just give Christian lip service to that idea while actually loving something else? Jesus tells us, take up our cross and follow him. He's literally saying, follow me in my suffering. He tells us to be perfect like our heavenly father is perfect. God gives us these impossible commands. He gives us these laws that we cannot follow. Not that we will somehow successfully fulfill them in our own ability and our strength, but instead he gives it because it will crush us in our attempts to meet the standard. And in our failure, we then have no place to run but the gospel. We have no place to go but to Christ. It's only by finding our hope and our identity in Christ that we're going to break free from the crushing weight and burden of God's requirements because Jesus has successfully met those requirements for us through his life of suffering. Which brings us to the other point that Paul's making. He's trying to connect the life of the apostles to the life of Christ because who else was treated like the worst of the worst? Jesus. Who else endured in the face of persecution? Jesus. So Paul's creating this hyper contrast between himself and the other apostles on the one hand and the Corinthians on the other. He's saying, you guys are fat, rich kings, and we are men who are condemned to death, utterly worthless, mistreated in every way. One of those sounds good, and one of those sounds awful. But in this upside-down world of the kingdom, those two types of life, one that's following the way that seems right, following the wisdom of the world, and the one that follows this cruciform life of Christ, they're completely juxtaposed in reality. The one that seems good leads to ruin. The one that seems awful leads to eternal life and joy. So why is Paul spending all this time and effort and attention on this issue of aligning themselves with the particular teachers. Why is that such a big deal? Well, first, it's important for us to note, before we answer that, that this issue of attaching ourselves to a particular teacher is something that's going to be more prevalent in a larger city. Where there's more people, there's more churches. Where there's more churches, there's more teachers. If you live out in the sticks of rural Alabama, there's probably only going to be like one faithful gospel-preaching church within 100 miles, and there's not nearly as much opportunity to create these kinds of factions, these kinds of allegiances. But here we are in McKinney, which feels and seems to us like a smaller town. Part of the reason we probably moved here, the reality is we live in the city. There's literally 30-plus churches within a mile or two of this building. You could go outside and swing a dead cat by the tail and throw it, and it would probably hit a church. <laughs> and you're like, that's funny, why a dead cat? I'm glad you asked. Two reasons. Reason number one, swinging a live cat is cruelty to animals and is not okay. Rule number two, reason number two, cats are always more valuable when they're dead. <laughs> now, what? We're preaching. The point is, there are lots and lots of teachers around here, right? And like we've already discussed, there's a lot of different teachers here at this church, Parkway. But here's the point, and it's an important one for us to understand, and it's not one we've covered yet, and that is this. The issue in our text, the thing Paul is dealing with, is not sinful division among any teachers. It's sinful division among faithful, good teachers. These people are dividing the church over men like Paul and Apollos and Peter. Listening to those men, following those men, should bring unity in the church, not division. If you were to say to me, I listen to Jared Lawson, and I'm going to go to his church plant because he faithfully preaches the word of God, and I'm not going to listen to this weird woke preacher across the street because they're teaching heresy and false teaching. That's exactly what you should do. That kind of division is not what Paul's talking about. You should be discerning about bad teachers and false teachers. The issue is, are you dividing over good and faithful teachers that ought to be bringing the church together? But still the answer of not yet, the question I'm not yet answered is why Paul's making such a big deal out of this. Why is he spending so much time on this little issue? Well, because it's no small thing. It is no small thing that he's dealing with in the hearts of the Corinthians because idolatry is at stake here. Their hearts are at stake. Their salvation is at stake. Idolatry, this idea of worshiping something other than God, loving something more than Jesus is what's at stake. Which brings us back to the creator-creature distinction that we've made a bunch of times over the last few months. This idea that if you drew a line and above the line you put everything that is creator, 
And below the line, you put everything that's created. Well, above the line, you'd have the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and nothing else. And below the line, you'd have literally everything else. And what's happening here is that the Corinthians are wanting to take something meant to be below the line and put it above the line. They're wanting to exalt these men rather than exalting what they teach. Rather than exalting Christ, they want to make much of these men. That's where they want to give their loyalty. That's what they want to worship. That's what they want to follow. That's what they want to be about. And so this argument about imitating the right thing, choosing this correct life, is one that Paul's going to be repeating and expanding upon in the coming chapters, right? Are we living a life that's easy and comfortable and we believe we've made it? Because if so, we look like the Corinthians and look nothing like the apostles, nothing like Christ. Or are we living a life of sacrifice and of service? Are we willing to lay down our preferences, willing to lay down our comforts and to give those things up for the good of others, for the good of the kingdom, for the good of of the sake of the name of Christ? And that's what Paul is inviting the Corinthians into. He's saying, and will say in just a few verses, imitate me. Don't imitate the world. Imitate me, he's going to say in just a few verses. And then in chapter 11, he's going to clarify even more what he means. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because it's only in pursuing and imitating Jesus that the Corinthians and us, church, are going to find that life and that joy and the comfort that we desire. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us. We pray that you will be near to us now as we finish up our time together, as we partake in communion together, as we sing a bit more to you in worship. We pray that your heart for your people will be seen and heard and felt by your people. That we will know that you love us. That just like Paul being so sarcastic and pushy with the Corinthians because he loves them, that's why you push us. Your spirit convicts us. Help us to see what we do not see. Help us to see where our hearts do not treasure Christ above all else. Help us to see this reality that it's so easy to say we love Jesus and yet worship something else. So we pray you'll protect us from that, Lord. Help us to see that you are a good God, that you have sent your son, that he has done an immeasurably good work on our behalf through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. So we thank you for being our God. We thank you for allowing us to be your people. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.